sometimes I think we focus too much on the boundary lines and less on what is it that we're, what are the core things that we're trying to hold and protect in healthy ways. I think where it gets upside down is when we focus too much on actually the boundaries before we're clear on what's on the inside of those boundaries. Boundary barriers become leadership barriers. What gets in the way of setting and maintaining boundaries gets in the way of leading well. Our polarized culture, along with so many demands on our time and energy, make it so important to get clear on what gets in the way of setting and maintaining boundaries and what they are protecting. Boundary clarity is needed because you have to know why you're laboring through the work of setting and maintaining boundaries. Without this clarity and focus, you will flounder and feel fed up, often giving up on your boundaries and yourself. Boundary clarity also helps in dealing with the inevitable backlash from your boundaries, like disappointing others and fears of being misunderstood. When you're clear on what you're protecting and fighting for, you have more confidence in navigating the work involved in setting and maintaining your boundaries. Now, too often we get so focused on when and how people violate our boundaries that we lose focus on the reason we're fighting for them. This leads to boundaries becoming barriers, no longer protecting what is important, our time, our relationships, our well-being. When we're out of alignment with our values, boundaries serve as our North Star, helping us recalibrate and protect what matters most. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Leading is complex and likely one of the hardest things you'll ever do. Therefore, it is essential to be clear on your boundaries and also their barriers because your boundary barriers become your leadership barriers. You can be braver and tolerate being vulnerable when you have a clear and effective boundaries. Simply put, boundaries help you lead and do life in a way that you want to show up in the world. Boundaries are easy to understand in theory and so, so hard to set, maintain, and respect in action. From my experience, boundaries are deceptively hard and also deeply misunderstood. I used to think setting the boundary was the heavy lifting of the process. Nope. Not at all. I get tripped up most when I'm dealing with the inner conflict and fear when I think about others reacting negatively to my boundaries. What's really draining is navigating the pushback I receive and the constant renegotiations. What helps you stay the course when you set boundaries? Your clarity of values and clarity on what your boundaries protect is key to me. Do you know what your boundaries are protecting? And if not, you're not alone. A lot of people do not know the answer to this question. Setting and maintaining boundaries with confidence requires boundary clarity by doing a regular boundary inventory. Check in regularly on where you feel bitter and resentful and overwhelmed. And this will usually lead you to where your boundaries need some care and focus. Reflecting on how your life and your business are aligned with your core values will also support your boundary confidence and clarity. 
My guest today loves to teach and talk about boundaries. Dr. Allison Cook is a counselor, a speaker, a dear friend and colleague, and also the co-author of Boundaries for Your Soul. For over 15 years, Allison has helped women learn how to heal painful emotions, develop confidence from the inside out, which I love, forge healthy relationships, and fully live out their God-given potential. Each week, she encourages over 30,000 subscribers to her email newsletter and blog at www.allisoncookphd.com. Listen to how Allison unpacks a powerful perspective on setting and maintaining boundaries. Notice our conversation around bypassing and how easy it is to often do it ourselves and to ourselves, especially when hard things happen to us. Pay attention to the insight Allison received as she navigated joining her blended family and how that translated to how she leads in all areas of her life, especially through her boundaries. Now, please welcome Dr. Allison Cook to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Allison, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Well, it's great to be here. I have been a big fan of this podcast and of you and had the privilege of being your friend. So it's really fun to get to do this together. I, I'm really excited. I'm excited for those that listen to the show to have a chance to know a little bit more about you and your wisdom. <clears throat> and, and, and often I say to guests, we start off going diving into the deep end. <laughs> Recently, you almost died. You had a pretty serious health crisis that shook you. It shook me as your friend and colleague. And I'm so, so thankful you are recovered and you are thriving. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, boy, we hit the ground. I Yeah, I sort of out of the blue. I'm with no real medical reasons still. They don't understand. It's considered an unexplained stroke. I had a stroke. Um, it was, wow. it was for anybody who's gone through that or who's had a loved one go through that. It's, it's pretty traumatic because within seconds, you lose your ability to move various parts of your body. The whole left side of my body was paralyzed. I didn't know what was happening. And thanks to my husband, the quick actions of my husband who kind of threw me in the car and raced me to the ER and the quick actions of the ER doctor, there's something they can do issue, which is a clot blasting medication. And if they get it to you within the first two hours, it can really diminish any long-term damage. So I did get that. I was in the ICU for several days. It, it, it indeed was a, a full-blown stroke. A clot had lodged itself in my brain and could have done terrible damage, long-term damage, if not killed me. So it was it was pretty crazy. And it was in the midst of this COVID thing. I didn't have COVID, but on top of all of the COVID fears, that, that was just this new thing that entered into our lives. What do you remember most about that wild 24, 48 hours? It's a long story. I've just started writing about it. But what I what's most vivid to me is my husband and I were going to go out on a date night. And I was super excited to I hadn't, you know, who, who was wearing makeup and you know, getting dressed up. And so I was I'd gone to the bathroom on a Friday night and was putting makeup on my left finger. And I was just sitting there staring at my finger going, I can't move it. How this is weird. And it was just it took me a while to register. I was like, you know, it, it's as if I tell people it's as if I could have no more moved that finger than I could have looked at a book and moved a book across the room. It was as if the finger wasn't connected to my body. And it just took me a while. It, it you know, the clot just 
completely then started to shut down that whole left side. And then, and then pretty quickly your, your, your system kicks in and realizes something is terribly wrong, started screaming. You know, it was a blur. There was so many, you know, flashes of weird moments from there. I'd never really had a major health scare like that, a life or death health scare. So it's fa- there's a part of me that was, I have a very keen observer part of me that was sort of aware and conscious of what was happening and observing it, but I was also very much in it. And so I was aware that I was, I was like, oh, this is, so I'm having a near-death experience and this is what I'm thinking about. It was sort of this bizarre um set of experiences that really took me months. It really, it is a trauma, um, like any, you know, like any trauma, a a medical crisis creates a trauma um, that you then have to, you know, here I'd been a therapist for years and I found myself having to go back into the work of unpacking the different parts of myself in relationship to that terrifying event of being completely out of control, just completely, you you in those moments, you know, you are completely, your body has done something that you can't control. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty surreal. And and you're young. I mean, you, yeah, you're yeah. 40, right? Yeah, For, yeah, you know, yeah. 40. I'm in my 40s. Yeah. In your 40s, you're like yeah. keeping it fit. That's cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're, you're young and, and healthy. And like you said, didn't have a health scare. And I'm just thinking about that feeling because we, we take our health, so many of us who haven't expected, we take it for granted, but also that piece of control, right? That all of a sudden upending something that we, you know, our abilities, those things, it just, it can activate so much. It's fascinating because one of the things in, in our work as both you and I as therapists and in the trauma world, there, there's this phrase, trust your body. Well, that took on a whole new connotation for me out of this. I was like, can I? <laughs> can I trust my body? Mm. So we, we expect our bodies to do operate in certain ways. And when they don't, it, it, it creates a really unique experience psychologically and physiologically. And that really lands because so many people I work with feel like they have had a breach with their relationship with their body. You know, whether it's a chronic health issue, whether it's traumas that happened to them or power that was taken away from them. And so it's really hard to lead yourself, let alone others, when there is this dissonance with your body or a lack mm-hmm. of trust in your body. And I know that this this experience brought about a powerful awakening for you, like, like it would anybody, <laughs> and brought about shifts in your work and life. What has changed or is changing for you? I took a medical leave. I had been working really hard. And so you go through all those layers of, did I bring this on myself? Of course not. But I did take the opportunity to step back and take some time off for a few months. And really, I just, I decided, you know, I, I tell, what, what would I tell someone else? What would I tell one of my clients? And it, it was a moment to practice what I teach, which was to really listen to my system, get to know my, my system had changed. Something had changed in my whole system. And I needed to understand that both, not just medically. So there was a whole series, you know, of course, of medical trying to figure out what, what had gone wrong, what had happened, but also emotionally, mentally, spiritually, how was I going to, and, and, you know, how was I going to create, stop this from becoming a new, a a trauma that would linger unhealed, Mm -hmm. but how could I go Mm -hmm. into this? I had, I had that unique opportunity to go, Oh, I can, I can actually be intentional about how I walk through this. It was scary. I ripped off so many band-aids, right? So many coping strategies to really just sit with. And, and thankfully I had the, the ability to do that for a few months, 
But it's been life changing in many ways. I've done a lot of work. So a lot of it is is at these deeper layers of becoming more integrated. But Mm -hmm. it, it certainly has. I'm grateful that I had that opportunity to really take the time that I needed to unpack it. Yeah, it's it is amazing. I I know for me, so many of the biggest changes in my life, it's almost like I was getting those nudges. And I'm not someone like this happened to you to get your attention. That's not how I see things. But it often because I'm so stubborn, and some for me so stubborn and so focused, it takes something really big to shake me up and go, wait, I need to rethink things. And, And sometimes that big thing, you know, the echoes of that are a lot longer than if I just paid attention, you know, to the to those little nuances. And sometimes things just happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I I appreciate about what you went through. Like the, the doctors don't even know really why. And I know so many people can kind of spin and go, maybe what's what's is there a thing or they, there's a perseverating of wanting to try and regain control, figure out what what is it and how can I prevent it from happening again? How are you navigating kind of staying out of that, that kind of loop? Lots of different ways. I mean, it's, there are medically, there are with something like stroke, you know, there's medication you take that dramatically reduces the likelihood of it happening again, which is hopeful now that they know that I, for whatever reason, which they don't usually there, there needs to be a couple of different things, factors that lead to a higher risk, none of which I had. So I am on that medication, which does help calm the nerves, you know, it does also mean there are certain things I can't do anymore because it thins your blood. So you can't, you can't get any sort of injuries. I can't ski, you know, I got to be really careful about certain things like that. So there's that side no of it. Bungee jumping right, for you. No, 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 no more bungee jumping or sky jumping. Just kidding. Totally. I know. <laughs> Dang it. Like the first few days, you know, my husband's like, do I need to like wrap you in cellophane and, you know, take you, you, know, you, you do learn to trust again, but, and I know you've been through this, Rebecca, you know, in, in your own way. And I hope you'll talk more about that, but then, the, so there's that layer of just, and, and continuing to seek ongoing consultation, continuing, I believe our health is something we have to steward. There's so many, gosh, I think about people that having to navigate the medical system, advocating for yourself. It's so hard. Um, Just trying to figure out the insurance, looking at the bills going, oh my word. I mean, it's, there's a a whole lot of layers on that side. And then there's, of course, for me, a, a spiritual component but I didn't want to bypass sort of like, well, you know, you, you know, there's so many different ways you can slap band-aids on this kind of thing, as opposed to really kind of, okay, I don't know why, like you said, I'm not going to just go to, there must be a reason because a lot of good has come out of it, but also kind of landing. You do need to land somewhere where you can find that new normal, trust yourself as best as any of us can at any given moment and move forward with that new that new normal. Yeah, and, and you're so at the beginning of it. I'm so excited yeah. to see the the echoes of of this and what this looks like and how you show up, you know, in your life too and what the world's going to going to see and learn from you. Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to shift gears to something else we have in common, sort of. And that you're a part of a blended family and so am I in different ways. My mom remarried to this amazing Steph family. It's incredible. It was an incredible experience for me. Um, and I've really valued hearing your discussion. I don't think there's a lot talked about blended families and just different types of families. And often um, people feel maybe ashamed or keep that quiet because people won't understand. And I'm curious, how has being in a blended family impacted how you lead? Wow, that's a great question in so many ways. I wish there were really short 
answers, you know, really pithy answers. I would say the work of being a, so I'll use the word stepmom, although no one in my family really likes that word. And unfortunately that, that word has just been gotten such a bad mm-hmm. connotation throughout, you know, you start with the fairy tales and all the way through and thank you, Disney. I yes. know it's just so I, it used to just hurt me, you know, cause it's such a beautiful role when like any parenting role, it's such an important, yes. beautiful role. And so many families in America have step parents or stepchildren. In my situation, my husband's first wife had passed away. And so I was coming in as a real on the ground caregiver, always mm-hmm. though recognizing you know, when you when you come in as that step or that second, similar to when you adopt children or, um, you know, when there's been a divorce or when there's been someone who's deceased, you're always holding space really for someone else. And so part of the way that you're loving is by holding space for that other mom. And the 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 beauty of that, that's hard work, <laughs> forces you to really go inside. But I think every mom has to do that work of what is best for my kids? What is about me? What is about me needing something here? What is about, or is there any anybody who's caring for another human, whether you're a mom, whether you're a therapist, whatever, where, however you're leading, what's, be, what's my team? What's best for my team? What's best for my kids? What's best for my client versus what am I needing? What, what's about me trying to get my needs met? What's about me trying to get a hit of love or mm. me trying to get a hit of affirmation? I think as a step parent, it's heightened a little bit, but I actually yeah. think it's the work we all have to do in leadership is really differentiating and really getting on top of, okay, I'm feeling this you know, this sense of, man, I'm second here, or I'm, I'm an outsider in this situation. But instead of acting out of that, noticing that, rumbling that, and really going back to the whole picture of what's best for everybody involved, what's best for the team, what's best for the system, and then coming in. And as you do that work, it's so gratifying because what's good for the system and what's good for the team is also healthy and good for you. So I think yeah, it's, it, is, it is leadership. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Absolutely. And, you know, the reason why I ask and you hit on something, I think, oh, I just my brain exploded a little bit thinking about how many things I've done in any capacity I lead personally and professionally, where whether I knew it or not, or was consciously aware that I was doing things to meet my needs primarily. And th- even if I thought it was altruistic, and how sneaky that stuff comes up and especially replicates from our story. And I know one of the most common things when I work with leaders, you know, we, we I sometimes will check in on something in their story and they'll say, oh, no, no, I've already worked on that. And I'll say, well, there must still might be some echoes. So let's can we just just check in on that? Because those echoes might need some attention from you because there still might be getting in the way of how you're showing up and how you're leading today. And the nuances of that, because it's okay to have needs, right? It's okay to want reciprocity, but understanding if we're getting hijacked by something that maybe is primal or that we're not aware of that's leading us and that we're not leading it, it can, and then I mean, shoot, it shows up in parenting like none other. It's, it's, yeah, especially <laughs> yeah, when it's coming out of our own woundedness, Right. And that's what I noticed. And I think that's true for any parent. But for me, what I noticed is I'd had a history of feeling 
in my family of origin a little bit like, you know, it's funny how we replay stories, as you're saying, echoes ripple throughout our lives. And I didn't even realize this, but I went in with this part of me that always felt like I was the helper. I was the one, you know, in my family of origin, I was the peacemaker. Mm -hmm. I was the one bringing other people together. And while that role felt good in my family of origin, there was a wound there. There was a part of me that desperately wanted to be the one getting all the kudos. And then you come into, you know, I came into my family and those old wounds were triggered. And it, I had to separate out, wait, what's coming from the past that is, is not appropriate for me to get those needs met from this situation? And mm. what is a genuine need that, like, as you say, that 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 is is a valid, fair I'm becoming a full member of this team. What's a genuine need that I need to have met? Separating that out from the wounded parts of me that kind of sneak in, as you say, they're sneaky and then start to see it. It it is. And I think for me, work is something that I've always enjoyed, but it's also been something that I've medicated with and protected with. It's a fine line because I've loved everything I've done in my professional career. You know me, I'm all in, but sometimes it's, I have to check and I hear this with leaders, we got to check our hunger. We got to check that drive. We got to check the intensity around it. If we're getting rigid, like for me, like some of those tells, if I get really rigid or obsessive or controlling, those are my tells that I need to kind of take a pause and go, there might be something else showing up here. What are some of your tells, um, whether how you lead at home or in work, where some of the echoes from your story are hijacking your leadership? For me, it's a strong sense needing to be seen as the the role you know it's it's almost opposite it's like needing to be seen as helpful needing to be seen as the one doing the giving <laughs> and i mean that's fine but you know when you're in a family that gets really annoying <laughs> you know it's like um actually <laughs> you know i i i got i get a ton out of my family right and so it's like or, or in my work right it's like the, those parts of me that are like oh actually i'm the one that's that's learning here. I'm the receiving. one that's receiving. So that that part of me can kind of sneak in and take itself to be, you know, the great, you know, savior coming in to help the, you know, and that's just a huge tale. Oh, I'm never like that. We're, never we're going off course. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. Yeah, I never no. do that ever, yeah. <laughs> ever. I'm glad my husband isn't around here because he'd be looking at me. Yeah, that's that's a good point. It's such a dance too. It isn't like something we ever just fix, but there isn't. There's nothing like whether, again, it's family or, you know, people that you're leading on a close team or people, you know, when you're really invested, whatever system you're invested in, it's going to find those little cracks that still need some attention, <laughs> need to pay attention. Uh, so thank, thank you for unpacking that. I just wanted to, to give some attention to that. Before we leave this topic, I'm just curious for you, and maybe, maybe you already addressed this, but what has been the hardest part of being in a blended family for you? At first, it was acclimating to this idea that my the three people I loved most in the world had a bond that preceded my bond with them, and there's just that's just the way it is. There's no there's no way around that. There's a whole you know there was a whole eight years that the three of them had bonded, and I could never. So, so you have, it, again, this is the work of, I think, any leader, but it's heightened where you have to pivot from like comparing, competing, trying to, 
to, to what is the bond that I can have? And it's precious. And I've built a precious bond over these last 10 years. That is everything I need. So it doesn't hurt anymore. But early on, I had to work through, and I knew, you know, you know, rationally, I, I knew rationally, of course, of course, there's a bond here that precedes me. Um, that is special and I want, and I honor it and I want that bond to be there. But then there's always a part of me that felt a little left out, you know, well, you know, where, where's, um, mm-hmm. when do I get to be special? Right. And that went back to my own childhood wound. And so doing that work of just not denying that, not pushing that aside at the same time, that wasn't work I needed to do with them. That wasn't their work to help me through, if that makes sense. Uh. And that, right. And so that, that was, that was what they were doing was not wrong. What they, you know, having that they, they needed. And and one of the things they'll say about blended families is you really do, there's this sort of idea, especially in faith-based communities, but in a lot of communities that the, the marriage always is first and the kids come second. Well, when you're blending a family, actually that takes time, that primary bond with the biological Mm. parent and the children is more important. It has to be that attachment to, to, to open up that system and create room for a new person to come in is delicate surgery, delicate. And so that bond needs to be, those that primary attachment needs to be handled very cautiously and very carefully so that over time you can graft in. And if you do it well, you can graft in that new person beautifully. Um, so for me, kind of, I, I got a hold of some good stuff that t- that walked me through that, that this is normal. You're going to feel this way, get support from other folks because it's going to take some time. And sure enough, you know, yeah. it, it, they, they talk about it being a slow cook, cooker, a, a crock pot. It's, it takes some time to slow cook this new system to where there's as much trust almost, you know, and then also we, you know, you, you, you figure out ways with your, with your spouse to, you know, every once in a while we'll, now, you know, he'll be like, they came to you first now, you know, and, and, you, and you're excited about that. And that's okay. You know, um, the more safety there is. Data. Yeah. I don't know if I told you this, Allison, but in grad school, one of my, in addition to trauma, one of my areas of focus was blended families, because I was so kind of a little obsessed with working through some of the stuff around on mine, as much as I love my blended family, how it happened yeah. was so jarring. Yeah. And so I wrote this huge, huge uh, paper and I sent it to my mom. And I remember her writing me back. She's like, well, this would have been helpful <laughs> back when we, I'm like, you know, it, it, but it was helpful for me. And it was, I mean, it was great to be able to say, hey, you know, here's, here's some stuff. And yeah, it's, it's amazing what we, we study, what we need to heal, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> for sure. For and sure. thankfully people like you so studied that good- to provide data for people like me later on coming into it so I could actually get get helpful advice versus terrible advice. You know, and and humans being human and relationships, it's 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 such an art, right? There's there's all these it's never a how to three steps, right? Mm-hmm. It's just getting frameworks and and then and so much of it is taking care of ourselves and the process of of showing up in in delicate and nuanced relationships. And speaking of that, I want to I want to segue into one of your cornerstone topics and one that I talk about with clients all the time and I'm passionate about, and that's boundaries. You are passionate about educating people. In fact, it's a core theme of your first book, Boundaries for Your Soul, which integrates the concept of boundaries, internal family systems, and faith. And so I want to ask you, why are boundaries so hard to set <laughs> and maintain, Allison? Do tell us. Oh, my gosh. Good question. I, I, I mean, honestly, I think part of the reason they're so hard to set and maintain is because 
we're missing the corresponding. Why do we have a boundary? You have a boundary because you're trying to protect something sacred, something special, whether it's your own self, whether it's a family. So sometimes I think we focus too much on the boundary lines and less on what is it that we're, what are the key things that we're, the core things that we're trying to hold and protect in healthy ways. So sometimes I think that's why they're hard. And that went back to my own childhood wound. And so doing that work of just not denying that, not pushing that aside. At the same time, that wasn't work I needed to do with them. That wasn't their work to help me through. I think where it gets upside down is when we focus too much on actually the boundaries before we're clear on what's on the inside of those boundaries. I love this, Allison. I want to make sure we really get this loud and clear that if we really want to set and maintain boundaries and do it well and feel the fruits of it, we have to be clear on the why behind them. I know for so many people that I work with clinically and in my leadership work, they often jump ahead and imagine how people are going to respond if they set the boundary or they maintain it. And, you know, I often say you got to do this for you and your values, regardless of how they respond. But they're like, but there could be a lot of backlash and I need to be prepared for that. And that's another, another, we'll we'll touch on that. But I'm really digging this piece that it really is why is this important and and that is aligned i mean whether it's a value whether it's it's an integrity issue if we have that clarity of the why that helps give a little juice and confidence to hang in there through the storm of setting and maintaining would you what would you add to that yes exactly it doesn't solve it's still hard it's still painful but it it if, if you're not anchored in your why in the reason i i think it's almost it's really impossible. I think the other the other thing that's hard is, so then you get into the how, right? How do I do it? And so many of my clients, that's what they're asking me. They're like, okay, I get the principle, but how am I supposed to tell this person? You know, how am I supposed to tell my mom? No, you know, I can't see you. Or how am I supposed to tell this person? And again, it, and that's really hard. And some of that is just tactical. It's just learning scripts. It's learning the, the book mm-hmm. that where, where we are talking about it more, where we zoomed in on it with Boundaries for Your Soul is working with the parts of yourself that have that resistance or whatever you want to call it. And that comes up as different for different people. So if you have a, you know, if you, you can run the Enneagram, you know, you have a high responsibility part. You don't want to ever let anybody down. So you have to work with that part of you and whatever narrative that part of you has, whatever narrative that part of you is telling you that this makes me irresponsible. Well, what's the reframe there? What what actually you got to work with that? What is the, if you're a pleaser, if you're a helper, well, I'm a terrible person if I don't do this. If you're an achiever, I need to do it all. You know, we all have these narratives these parts of us that carry stories about what it means to let someone else down or say no to somebody or to set a boundary. And you got to know what yours are. It's, it's kind of like you're saying, we call it in IFS, they call it a trailhead and not let it drive and become clear about it, do the work with it. Um, that's the internal work that I think is also critical to boundaries because then they're more robust. Again, then they're strong. Then they're really coming from that place of buy-in from all of who you are, as opposed to, I'm just going to do this because somebody told me I have to, and I hate it. And I'm probably going to go back to this person later (laughs) on down the road because I, you know, I haven't actually done the internal work to feel solid that this is okay. I've reframed some of those stories or those messages inside my system. Yeah, I, I think working with the different parts of us that might 
overwhelm us and keep us from honoring our own commitments to ourselves and our values with boundaries is key. And the responsibility one is definitely a frequent flyer in conversations. I think other folks who experienced intense emotional or physical backlash with boundaries as a kid or felt like they had to keep the peace to stay safe, I see that one show up, especially with a lot of leaders, and it really confuses them because they're like, that was so far, that was so long ago, and I'm safe today. But some of those parts of us still may hang on to those echoes from our story, and they may not be aware it's 2021, you know, and... And so, and so that's, I think, getting clear on our why the scripts are helpful. I definitely walk through scripts, but I think for me, I don't know what you say about this, also trying to unhook. And and again, if people have trauma in their story, it's a little harder, but unhook from the response or the backlash a little bit, just to give a little space. And, And I often say if, especially the closer the relationship the more the pushback. And so if like, if someone pushes back on the boundary, like a family member, three to five times, you're doing great. You're on, you're on the right path. Like know that that's good data. It, they're like, what? You mean when they don't respect me, it's a good thing. I'm like, yep, Hank, keep hanging in there. And, and then we do the work to help their inner team hang in there when they're wanting to, and to, to set or maintain. But I think the hardest, especially for leaders is to realign a boundary. Like if they've been leading one way and they realize this isn't working for me, for my team or the company, then I need to realign. And there's a lot of fear around that. And people too. don't always like it. I mean, that, that the reality is we're nope. going to disappoint people, but again, you're always holding the both and when you're clear about your why, and then there's that humility as a leader to say, I've got to make this pivot. I get that it's disappointing. And here's here's what we're going to do, you know, in creating those spaces as best you can. But as you said, Rebecca, and I say this to people all the time, if somebody can't go on that journey with you, you're getting great data about them. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're learning. This is a person yeah. that if I can't take that, if I can't, <sighs> if, if they cannot respect this process that I'm trying to run here and they can't dialogue with me about it, have a genuine conversation about it, then I'm, that's a person that's not someone that you're going to want to probably be have really close to you anyway. (laughs) So why do we try to hang on to those people? (laughs) Well, I don't know how you feel about this, but I know for me and what I've done before, and also I hear from those I work with, they don't want to go into grief and they know setting boundaries is going to usher them into the loss of the idea of the relationship, what it was and what it's not anymore, or what it never was, or you know something along those lines. But there's there's the grief, absolutely. You know, and the other part is being mis. The other side of that of that is also the fear of being misunderstood, you know, and especially as women, oh, I don't want to be seen as, and you know the drill, right? If we set and maintain, and then like you know, don't be to this, to that, you know, all of all of the stuff we've breathed in and internalized around misogyny and, and sexism in that space. But, and so people can use that and it can get pretty intense. What do you see as the biggest boundary barriers for leaders today? And um, well, that's a good question. Cause leadership is such a broad category. So I'm trying to think of which capacity of leadership. I think that probably the biggest barriers that I see are 
the, yeah. th this is just because of the work that I do are the internal messages that women in particular have absorbed, just as you were touching on, absorbed from the culture. I should do this. I should be that. I should be able to carry all the things, all the weight of other people's work. And one of the things I'll have women do in particular is just right, just every day. It is not my responsibility to do other people's emotional work. It is not my responsibility. You know, it is my responsibility to have integrity. It is not my responsibility nice. to do someone else's emotional work. Their reaction is their reaction. It is not my responsibility to manage that. And again, like as you choose your, you're unhooking from that reaction. There's a reason why women have, we, we have absorbed these messages for centuries that it is our job to bear the weight of everybody else's stuff. And so it, even if you're not consciously feeling that, it it's in the air that we breathe. So I do think that that in strengthening, you know, I talk about strengthening that muscle. You can strengthen it, strengthening that muscle. It and I'll say muscle. sometimes it's not about, as far as boundaries, it's not about me only or me first. It's simply about me too. I get to have space here too. I get to show up too. And that's all the boundaries. It's saying I get to have space in this relationship. I get to have a voice. I get to have a say. So I'm not trying to take away anybody else's voice. I just want to also have a voice. I just also want to have a say. And I just think there's that re-educating that we have to do, especially for women of understanding what that looks like in a healthy way. It's not this binary of it's got to all be about my way or the highway. Um, right. And it's also not this binary that we've inherited for centuries of my needs don't matter. I just need to suck it up and take it all on the chin. And right. It's this it's I just want to be able to show up at the table with a voice. Yeah. Well, and, and we have the voice. It's just to have that respected yeah. and honored darn yeah. straight right <clears throat> and and so okay this is this is a i think so important and i i think too there's so many common misunderstandings around boundaries which you're you're starting to you touch on a little bit what are some of the common misunderstandings that you often hear around boundaries that they make you selfish that they make you the twos what you said too too demanding to loud to needy that they make you mean other people won't like them you know mm -hmm. just those those kinds of messages that it feels guilt you know we, we just feel bad yeah i know and people will say these these boundaries aren't nice <laughs> and i'm like yeah but we're not here for nice we're here for kind and loving and sometimes it gets a little scrappy and kind and loving but nice is is appeasing and complicit and then they're like oh I don't want to be that. And I'm like, okay. Um, and then the action of it though, it's just, it's just tender because I think one of the biggest misunderstandings is their walls too. I think I've heard this weapon. I'm just setting a boundary and I'm like, okay, that's actually a wall. Like when you were saying the, my way or the highway, that gets my system all fired up. I'm like, no, just say, you're, you're, you know, that's not a boundary. I mean, sometimes it is maybe depending on the circumstance, but often when I hear it flippantly, just shutting down a conversation boundaries still often if it's, if safety is involved. Okay. That's like, that's the caveat often still have a reciprocity and, and, and a, a room for conversation. Um, 
but people don't like to have to change how they, they, some, they don't, they like how we were operating. They want us to keep doing what we were doing. And, and, and it's hard in that initial backlash too. Um, but, and, and, and to call the boundary something it isn't like, Oh, you know, you're being mean, um, or to, or to even weaponize. Some people weaponize boundaries and misuse it. I the don't other like thing that, that people, the miscon, another big misconception around boundaries is, is, is when they're used as a form of control. And the the biggest thing when I Ooh, right, yes, when I'm working I'm with women, there it's it, the boundary isn't to try to control somebody else's behavior, and that we want control, and so mm. to let go of to be like, no, you're you're not trying to change them. You're saying it's very much about you. It's very much about you saying, I'm going to be removing myself from this conversation. I won't be doing this anymore. Um, this is how I will communicate from. It, they may or may not change. You are not. They're never a way to try to control somebody else. And that's easy to for people to get confused when they're first starting they to conflate. use boundaries. They yeah. conflate that. Okay, so the focus, let's, I want to circle us back before we move on to my next question, or next topic with you. We got to get clear on our why, right? Our, why are we wanting to set, maintain or realign a boundary? We got to focus more on that than how they're going to take it. And we want to be aware of how they respond if there's a safety issue, of course. And then if there's parts of us that are afraid of that, get the support to do that work. So our system trusts us to set and maintain or realign those boundaries. I think that is huge. And boundaries may feel controlling, may be healthy to you and feel controlling to somebody else. And on the flip side, if we don't have a good understanding of boundaries, they can be said called boundaries when in fact, it can be gaslighting, it can be controlling, it can be manipulation. Yeah, pretty much. That's a lot, but that's why they're hard <laughs> to circle back to your very first question. Right? Why are they hard? It's deep. There's a lot here because it's the combination. It's bringing together Nuance. the soul work of becoming a whole person, which is really the goal. The goal is not the boundary. The goal is to become a whole mm. person. That's the important work. And, and there's so many different on that path. There's so many different ways that those boundaries can go askew based on how other people react or how we misuse them. Um, but if you keep that in front of you, right, this is about me trying to become the person I think I'm supposed to become. It's not about hurting anybody else. It's not about trying to get my way. And these are the steps I have to take to do that. And, and, and then always, you know, am I open to feedback? Am I open to genuine, not the toxic stuff that you're talking about, but to genuine feedback? Because none of us is going to get it right as we first start to set them. We're going to all make some mistakes. So annoying. <laughs> so, yeah. Super annoying. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think I think that's great. It's just important to recognize, constantly check back with boundaries. That's one of the core things I know I do in my life and I do in my work is let's just do a boundary inventory. Then if something's amiss a, a in work at home, let's take a look at boundaries and values. And usually we can find where yeah. the leak is, right? All right. So another topic that we're both passionate about and gosh, this could be a whole <laughs> podcast episode is how people use language to bypass their pain and the pain of others. Now I see this in the faith community, but I know you, you do too, but you also, we also see it in the personal development space where struggle is seen almost as a moral and professional failure. So can you share what the impact of bypassing is on those who use it and receive it? Yeah. 
an experience. Yeah, I mean, I think in in the work that I do, which is largely integrating psychology and mental health with faith communities, so that's where I'm the most familiar with it. Is it's it's just simply trying to put platitudes or cliches or pat answers on pain, and it doesn't work. It's a Band-Aid. So when other people do it to us, you know what it feels like. Oh, you'll be fine. You'll cheer up. Get, get it, you know, stay positive. And what you're doing is you're bypassing that genuine part of your soul that is hurting. Um, and in, instead of giving that part of you the balm that it needs, you're exiling it. You're shoving it further away. And what people don't realize is actually to take that moment to acknowledge the pain, to acknowledge the hard thing is actually a, a better, more thorough road to the health that you desire. So spirit, you know, it, the bypassing doesn't work, number one. I think it's a way to short circuit the process. And usually when people are doing it to you, it's because they're not comfortable with their own tenderness, with their own vulnerabilities, with their own rough spots. Yeah. And again, this gets at the soul work of really getting comfortable in your own skin. I talk a lot about confidence and humility going hand in hand, confidence and vulnerability. Confidence isn't, I am the best, you know, confidence is I know myself inside and out. I know where I struggle. I know where I'm weak. I know where I um, ha ha still have rough edges and I'm at peace. I've encountered those places inside of me. I know where I have pain and therefore I'm not afraid of it. And I'm not afraid for you to see it either. Now, if you can't handle it, that's on you. What are some examples of bypassing? What are some of the common things that we would see or hear when bypassing um, is happening? I think, and again, we can, we can also do this to ourselves, but typically people experience mm -hmm. it. But, you know, I'll say, you know, well, just, you know, it, so for example, in a faith community, be like, you just need to pray that away, right? You're feeling anxious. You just need to pray that away. Or you're feeling sad. Stop. Don't dwell on it. Don't dwell on it. You know, just just you need to move on. If you're feeling fear, right? Fear is a big one that we're like, you know, get rid of the fear. You can't fear. Can't You know, and it's like, well, no, actually, fear is allowed to be there. It's real. You don't want fear to drive, you know, but so, mm -hmm. so that's a big one. You'll hear, you know, starve your fear or fear is the enemy of, and, and, and in fact, no, fear goes hand in hand with courage. So just it. anything like that where folks are, you know, you know, I, I kind of use this image of, you know, they're just kind of skimming. There's this deep well of emotions that some of them are hard that actually are allies and assets to you that make you stronger, that make you more whole. And when you're bypassing them, you're just skimming across the top, missing out on all of this, this great, you know, so for example, I'll use the example of my, my stroke. It would have been so easy to just bypass that. Well, I had this crazy medical thing. Nobody knows why. Moving on. Don't want to dwell on it too long. That's scary. I think a lot of people do that. I couldn't do that. That I had to go into the fear, the terror, the, you know, the uncertainty, not to stay there. But again, as I was saying before, in order to come out going, I've, I've kind of looked it in the eye and I'm okay. That's a su such a deeper place from which to live in this world. There's not a whole lot that can shake you when you've done that work. Yeah. You know, and I often talk about the protector of bypassing, you know, the bypasser protector and it, it, I know it shows up 
you know, I like do this with other people, but then if my husband's hurting, I'll be like, you're fine. You're fine. We'll be fine. Just, just relax. Just let it go. And my husband like, it's like, do you, you don't talk to anyone else about this because it guts me when he's hurting. I love him so much, you know, and I feel like there's some, even with my kids, I have a little bit of empathic detachment and, but I mean, it's just seeing him when, if he's hurting or upset, then I just, I want to rush through it because it hurts me. And so I respect the protector, the bypassing protector, but I also see if we're not aware of it, how it shuts down people, it shuts down courage. It shuts down courageous conversations like you're talking about. I love how you intersect that. And with fear and courage are Inner, inner, inextricably connected. I mean, of course, you can't have courage without fear. You don't just say like, "Yeah, so courageous today." You have so such a breeze, you know. Said no <laughs> one ever really accurately. And so I, I'm thinking both. We've been in such a reckoning in our culture, in faith communities, in businesses, in government, because we bypass that the complicated messy, hard conversations of accountability or of doing the work to make sure people understand how they can do it's do harm. And it's because it's too uncomfortable, like so much is like, we don't want to bring that to the office. That's personal. I'm like, no, humans are humans everywhere. So yeah, I'd love for your, your thoughts on that reflection and just, you know, the, the protect, protector of bypassing does, you know, it's there for a purpose, but the impact it's had on our culture has been just Yeah, it's interesting to think about it culturally and historically in this country, at least you think about, we certainly came by that bypassing um, culturally, you know, if you look back even, I don't know, 50 years, you know, you, there's certain things you just don't talk about. Don't talk about these hard things. And that was overt in our culture. Like, and I think right now we're facing the, the damage that that caused because it doesn't heal anything. It just shoves it down deeper where it festers even more. So many of us perhaps grew up in families, you know, a lot of us still, I think it's changing with this, you know, generation, but in my generation, you know, yeah, you just don't talk about that stuff. You keep it, you keep it together and we've had to learn that doesn't work. And, and there is a healthy, I think what people were sort of in this teetering place of, can we trust though? I, I, I'm not sure, but I think the fear of the bypassing protector. And I know I don't tend to do it to other people, but I do very much tend to do it to myself. I very much tend to use that language of you're fine, knock it off. You know, it can be kind of harsh. Like the fear is... If I go there, will I have to, it's just going to be so painful as you're saying, and, and I'll stay there forever. And so you have, you have to look at that yes. fear and say, let's, okay, let's honor the fear of that protector. But I think the truth, that's why I'm always trying to say it. it's not to stay there forever to stay in that. It's, it's to actually get down into the marrow of the bones so that we can bring in some deeper healing and come up in a different place. It's not for the faint of heart. It can be scary, but 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 it's not so that we can stay in that pain. It's so that we can come up into a better place. So, I think I think acknowledging the fears, whether in ourselves, the way we treat ourselves, whether in as we kind of look at each other and we're like, "Man, I'm afraid to go there with that person." Kind of going, "What's my fear if I if I walk into that? What what what's that part of me afraid of?" And honoring that things can go awry 
And also, is it worth taking that risk? Yeah, I mean, because the protector, the bypass protector can protect power in systems within ourselves or within culture that are toxic and don't want that. They want to bypass, you know, move along. But because my my follow-up question was, how do we know when we're doing it? And I'm hearing from you, follow our fears, follow our discomforts and follow how we're responding. And if we're trying to move along quickly, I just read this article um, that talked about the different types of traits that are linked to white supremacy. And one of them is urgency and efficiency. It's a good. And it just hit hit me hard. And you got it, you got it. And this isn't, you know, or this won't be good for business or we gotta be efficient and just stay focused, stay in our, stay in this little lane, you know, you know, anyways, so what are some other ways I follow the fear to help, you know, stay curious that that protector might be leading us? What are some other ways we might be aware of that that part of us? Yeah, is I don't leading? know. I, I like the word, I think you use the word dis, um, discomfort. So that, which is another version mm-hmm. of fear that's going to feel uncomfortable to me. Okay, fair enough. But does that mean that we shouldn't walk into these hard conversations? Because I do think this bypassing, as you say, is a huge piece of what we've done in this country as far as reconciling, reckoning with our history um, of white supremacy, of privilege, of these things, right? We just just want to blow right past it. And so just noticing what that stirs up, just pausing long enough to go, what, what, what am I afraid? What, you know, why not? You know, what if, what if, you know, sometimes I'll... I'll kind of try to flip it to people and say, but what if you don't, what if something good could come out of it? Um, Cause you're always working mm-hmm. with that protector that is there for a reason. It, it's there because it thinks it's protecting something. Um, right. And yep. if you start to hammer at it, as we know from IFS, that tends to polarize it and make it dig it, dig in stronger. Um, so getting curious I don't know. No, I, I think curiosity is is a big part of that. And that's one of the qualities of self-leadership. And that, so that leads me to to my next question. It, you know, we're both internal family systems practitioners. And I want to talk about it a little bit more in a granular level. But I, I, I'd love for you to share what drew you to this approach to healing and leading. Well, I came to learn about internal family systems at the very, very end of my doctoral work. <laughs> And um, I was on this quest to study. Um, I was I studied a lot about God. I'd studied a lot of theology, and I'd studied a lot of psychology. And I was very interested in how we come together as spiritual humans. <laughs> how do the two come together? And that was just this quest I was on. And I, I didn't really find any great answers to that. And then all of a sudden, I was pretty much almost finished up with my dissertation. And I started learning about IFS. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is how that comes together. And it's this idea that at the core of every human in IFS, we call it the self. But as Richard Schwartz, you know, we'll talk about every, every major religion has some name for this idea of that there's something at the core of us that is has a bent toward healing, that has a bent toward wholeness, 
And that has been covered over by lots and lots of fragmentation and parts of us that have gotten hurt and have gotten you know, wounded along the way, but that, that core self is there. And I was like, I, this is it. This is to me where, where we bring together the best of psychology with, with also a core spirituality. Um, and that was just for me, I was like, okay, that this model, I, I, this made sense to me. And I started immediately kind of adopting it and using it. It's also practical. There's ways in which you can begin to peel back the layers um, of the parts of you that, have gotten wounded that have gotten buried to begin to uncover more of that core self. Um, that is that place that, that I was kind of talking about where were you, when you kind of faced all these parts of you, even the ugly ones, even the ones, you know, the parts that are hard, the parts that are, you know, all these things that you don't want to face that, that self just shines through and that there's just so much, um, calm and clarity and peace and goodness there that no one else can take away from you. And I began to look through, you know, I, I began to shift from a pathologizing view. Like I, I never, I never um, subscribed yes. to the pathologizing view of psychology. I was always like, I don't, eh, whatever, I don't get this. Like there, there's certain, I think there's certain ways you get, you know, <laughs> diagnostic criteria are very helpful and I get it, but I was just like, no, there, there's more to this. And so IFS to me really brought forth, we're, we're not trying to, to diagnose the core pathology, we're trying to uncover the core beauty of every single human um, who walks this planet. Um, and there are a million ways that we have to work on doing that both individually and systemically. You know, a colleague of mine uh, that used to work on my team uh, when I before I disbanded the group at Potentia, Daniel Kim, he led this workshop that really landed this for me and, and it, it, it was after, you know, I'd already started my deepening my IFS training. I'd been exposed to IFS early, early in my clinical career because I saw Dick Schwartz speak at an eating disorder conference early on. That was one of my areas of clinical specialty. And and Daniel Kim talked about this approach to Imago Dei or total depravity, which are theological terms, but hang in there with me, folks. So this Imago Dei is that we, you know, everyone's made in the image of God. And this total depravity is we are all broken, you know, and that at the root of this is core, you know, there's just darkness and, you know, the word sin is so just sometimes challenging, um, but real. And, and so this Imago day, and he was asking us in this workshop, you know, how do you show up with your clients and how do you show up in real life? And what hit me is I realized when I'm sitting in front of someone, no matter what they'd experienced, no matter what they had done, I just saw the Imago Dei lens and yeah. it felt so true. It didn't matter. I know I have to check a box if they want to get reimbursed by insurance. And I was glad to ethically do that and ethically and legally meet those requirements. Um, but that, and I realized that I wasn't living that personally. I was living the total depravity until that workshop. And, and then started to realize, holy cow, I need to start to integrate this to myself even. And I see this with so many people too, like that's good for you, you know, but me, you know, the high, the eye stuck and the, 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 the impact of shame. And, and so IFS has been such a impactful piece professionally to help people rethink, you know, and not just you're broken. If you're struggling, you know, the pathologizing, the, the labeling, the condemning uh, versus, Oh, Sounds like a party is trying to keep you safe or hurting you while they're doing that. 
um, or they're getting in the way of this incredible vision you have. <laughs> so let's get curious about that and using those C qualities that Dick Schwartz calls, you know, the, let me see if I can get them all. Courage, compassion, clarity, connectedness, creativity, calm. I'm at six. No, confidence. Did I say confidence already? Confidence. I'm missing one. Ah, I can always get up to six or seven. I'm missing one. Um, <laughs> courage, calm, clarity, confidence, compassion, compassion, clarity, creativity. <laughs> okay. Connectedness. There we go. There we go. But these C's are more than just words. They're qualities that if we are approaching those parts of ourselves or others, people's pain when they're struggling from that space, that's where the healing can come. And that kind of, that's the quality of a leadership that really can sit with the hardest of conversations, whether looking at our own story or sitting with the pain or the anger of others. So yes, it's a powerful it's methodology. Powerful and it, it, um, yeah, I, I have, there's different ways you can use it. You know, there's different ways that you can apply it. It's rooted in this idea, you know, he, he started off as a family systems guy, right? So you're looking at systems. So you can use it to look at systems. Yep. Um, you can look at it, the system within the individual, but it, it certainly is this hopeful, um, not, not to say that it's an easy journey, um, but it's a hopeful journey. You know, that's right. And and Dick Schwartz will say we're we're hope merchants. And I mm-hmm. I, I co-sign for that. Oh and, and and I'm a hope merchant, yeah. not a Pollyanna merchant. I can yeah. be you know, scrappy <laughs> hope is what I talk about because it's messy to be hopeful. Um, yeah. but we're hope merchants. So I, I yeah, it's a, it's an honor to to be that role, not only to others, yeah. but to ourselves, right? And yeah. everything that we go through. Holy cow, this this hour flew by. <laughs> um, this has been an honor, Allison. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your leadership and your wisdom and your heart. So really glad that folks have a chance to get to know you and learn from you today. Boundaries are the key to thriving in work and life. They protect what matters most and support your resilience and endurance. Yes, there are a lot of important skills involved with setting and maintaining boundaries. And when you know why your boundaries really matter, then you can maintain them even when others push back. Allison shared with us the many nuances around boundaries and how they constantly need to be customized to your values and your life. She also emphasized the importance of being crystal clear on what our boundaries are protecting so we don't get lost in the weeds of who and how they're being disrespected. Without a clear sense of why you are investing the time and effort around your boundaries, you will flounder, and so will the things you care about. So where can you better honor your boundaries and work in life? Are you clear on what your boundaries are protecting? And what gets in the way of setting and maintaining boundaries? Navigating the physics of boundaries involves inevitable backlash. To avoid surprise and heartache, it is essential to adjust your expectations and prepare for the pushback as you shift how you function. Pushback is normal and a sign of a good boundary. And us humans sure love to negotiate and test boundaries. But remember, staying true to your boundaries is staying true to yourself. Leading is hard, and so is staying true to your boundaries. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and those important boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. 
You do not mind making hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to sign up for my weekly Rumble email list and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.